This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Space Oddity. Hello and welcome back to Star Stuff. My name is Cody Halfmoon. And today we are joined by our very own historian, Kevin Schindler, our co-host, Haley Osborne, of course. Hi, guys. And we have a special guest today, a dark sky advocate and park ranger at the Grand Canyon uh, named Raider Lane. What's up, Raider? Hello. Did you want to give a quick walkthrough of a typical day and night? So like you show up to work? Well, a typical day at the park... uh... Well, it's really, it's really always atypical. There's not really a typical day. There's always something crazy going on. Uh, if I could, th- if I could thread some sort of uh, uh, normality in a day, it would look something like, you know, working, working the visitor center desk maybe for an hour, uh, helping people plan their trips, uh, walking along the rim of the canyon, talking to visitors using informal interpretive techniques to sort of connect people to the park while they're standing there on the rim. Uh, You might give a program or two uh, during the day. And, and then you might go back and sort of work on collateral duties. Uh, For me, it would be things like organizing the Grand Canyon star party, which is a pretty large event that takes several months to organize or, you know, doing, doing, you know, getting my hands into various other outreach programs that are sort of on a, a longer term, longer burn uh, type of schedule. So uh, that'd be a typical day. And then, you know, into the evening, we offer evening programs uh, every, every night. And uh, those, you know, rangers will give those programs and they're anything from geology to history, but a lot of them are focused on night skies. And those involve mainly going out under just incredibly dark skies and giving uh, constellation programs with a laser pointer or, or having a, a few telescopes set out and, uh, and showing people the, the night sky through the scopes. And we'll be out there for the um, star party. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lowell Observatory's coming up to help out at the Grand Canyon Star Party this June. And Kevin... I know we're going to have some solar telescope stuff. Yeah, yeah. Solar telescopes during the day, setting up a booth, doing some outreach there. And then Kevin Schindler uh, here is going to be one of our special guest speakers in our theater and uh, talk about the history of... he's so famous. He's so famous. Yeah, he's he's so good. (laughs) We keep, infamous. We, keep, <laughs> infamous. we keep bringing him back every year just because it's such, you know, it's his talk is such a, 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 a classic at the Grand Canyon talking about the, you know, the history of the Apollo astronauts, uh, you know, training at the Grand Canyon to prepare themselves for, you know, geologic uh, explorations on the lunar surface. So uh, it's just such a classic talk that people connect with. And, uh, and so we've had, Kevin up for several years, I think, at this point in a row. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, forced him on many podcasts in a row too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a great guy to talk to, just the wealth of knowledge. And we actually have some, you know, history, Kevin and I, of doing some fun, you know, research in the park and 
recreating some of those uh, those astronaut photos that were taken back in the or the mid 1960s. You know, trying How to go fun. down into the canyon and <laughs> recreate those photos, and we we actually mm-hmm. found some some really fun uh, really fun things about those photos. So some similarities in the landscape, some ways that the landscape has changed. So it was it's been a it's been a fun side project that uh, I've helped Kevin with over the years. Um, and today, of course, we're focusing on dark skies uh, to celebrate International Dark Sky Week. Yeah, you know, International Dark Sky Week is uh, is the 22nd through the 30th, and uh, it's really just a, uh, a, a great way uh, to, you know, showcase pristine night skies in national parks, talk about light pollution, and it's all spearheaded by the International Dark Sky Association based down in Tucson who have helped national parks and communities like Flagstaff uh, become certified as international dark sky parks and international dark sky communities. Uh, sort of a, a, a growing list of sort of the last remaining sanctuaries of true pristine dark skies in the United States and beyond. And this kind of leads me to my question that I've got for you. Um, So we live in a dark sky community here in Flagstaff. So we know like most of the basics, but uh, for those who are unfamiliar, could you tell us exactly what a dark sky community is and Grand Canyon being dark sky park, what's the difference between the two? Like, are they, are they different requirements? Yeah, there are slightly different requirements and basically it's part of the, the international dark sky communities and dark sky parks uh, certifications are under the larger umbrella of the international dark sky places program uh, from the International Dark Sky Association. And basically, it's it, these are a set of certifications that communities or parks can get when they've demonstrated, uh, one, that they have pristine dark skies, two, that they've taken uh, action, depending on you know whether you're a park or a community will dictate what type of action is required. Uh, but that you've taken action to protect the dark skies. And that's usually through retrofitting uh, a series of lights in, in the community or the park uh, to be dark sky friendly. And then three, to have ongoing outreach programs talking about light pollution, talking about pristine night skies and, and the stars and showing it to visitors. So when it comes to Grand Canyon, our our international dark sky park sort of application process uh, took several years because it it's it was really unprecedented in scale. Uh, we we hired a light lighting inventory specialist. Grand Canyon Conservancy, our nonprofit partner, hired this specialist back in 2013 to inventory all of the lights in the park and. She wow. astonishingly inventoried 5,094 lights in this park. And when it comes to wow. you know, a, a national park, you know, that's really unprecedented in scale. And, you know, the, the, the park was already dark. We had taken night sky, quanti- quantified night sky measurements with our uh, science and resource management team. 
and the part the 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 the, the, the night sky was already pristine here but taking those 5094 lights and seeing which ones we actually needed to change out to make the park even even darker uh, was a crucial part of this process to keep the park dark. And uh, yeah. it turns out that about 33% or so of those lights needed to be retrofit to be either, you know, by retrofit, I mean, putting a, a full shield on it or changing out the bulb to be a little bit warmer in, in, in Kelvin's uh, or mm. putting on a motion sensor or just getting rid of it altogether. Uh, mm. So, we went around and we had a prescription for every single light in the park and changed out, you know, these 33% of these lights. So that all told was about 1500 or so lights initially wow. to become dark sky, a dark sky park. And, uh, and so we're basically the, the early criteria was to make 67% of these lights dark sky friendly. We accomplished that in 2019. And the goal now is to make hundred percent of the lights dark sky friendly in the next, in the next few years. And so uh, it's, it's, it's really just a, like I said, this is the only national park in the entire country with a K through 12 school inside its borders. You know, there's a, mm -hmm basically a community of up to 3000 people who live here in the height of the summer. So while we're an international dark sky park, in a lot of ways, we're also an international dark sky community. And in terms of how many lights we actually retrofit to make this happen, um, I can't think of any other park or really communities in that matter that have changed the amount of lights we have in such a short mm -hmm. amount of time. And you live there as well, right? I do. And actually, uh, it, it, it's really funny because, you know, International Dark Sky Parks, unlike communities, you know, don't have to go through nearly as much sort of uh, zoning and, you know, talking with town councils and things to get these large scale retrofits to happen. I mean, we're, we're a community, but we're also sort of run as a national park. So it was really quite impressive to see that one day or basically over a couple of weeks in the summer of 2019 once we got all of the lights prepared to be retrofit you know just over a couple week period uh they were all retrofit so just every single person's you know uh light in their house you know or in the front of their house in the back of their house Many of the lights in the historic district, you know, just almost like a snap of the finger were all replaced. And I, I like to think that when I stepped outside of my little cabin here on the rim of the canyon and bumped into a ladder, seeing a, a, a maintenance gentleman retrofitting my light, I like to think that that was the last light that we needed to to you know, bridge that 67% ga uh, 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 designation. And, uh, and so that's exactly what happened. I walked out and my light was being changed and it, it was like that for the whole park. So it was, it's really Good like timing. Yeah, it was, it was great. Raider, what was, what was the original impetus to um, make Grand Canyon a, a dark sky park? And, you know, the changing of the lights was pretty rapid, but when did the process start? How long did it take you to get to that point in 2019? Great question, Kevin. Like the, the, I think people would say that twenty about twenty thirteen when uh, Grand Canyon Conservancy got 
quite a, a large donation from uh, the Joe Orr Foundation. Joe Orr was a, an amateur astronomer here who came up and participated in the Star Party. Uh, he donated a, 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 a lot of money when he passed to specifically to the Dark Sky Initiative, I think uh, for Grand Canyon. And I think that was the catalyst to really get this going. But the truth is there's been night sky rangers starting back in the late 90s that had the vision of turning Grand Canyon into an international dark sky park. Uh, the, the whole international dark sky place program really took off back in 2001 with Flagstaff, Arizona being the first Interna not just International Dark Sky Community, but International Dark Sky Place under that program. And very soon after that, there were night sky rangers in the park service who were having, who had their eye on changing uh, or making many of these national parks, International Dark Sky Parks. And so uh, there was actually initial measurements taken by a uh, a team in the National Park Service, you wouldn't believe it, but there's there's an actual division called the Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division in the National Parks, which is like the coolest, you know, wow. division to work in. And they basically go around and they quantify the darkness of national park sites and do all sorts of other things. But they were taking measurements here as early as 2007. And, uh, and so I would say that the, the real catalyst started about 2013. So it was a good six years to get this, this thing, this big ship turned around to become a dark sky park. And, and I was wondering, Raider, how long have you been at the Canyon that you would care to admit? <laughs> uh, I started at, uh, two, in 2010. So yeah, I think I have a, a few more stalagmites and stalactites than most of the other <laughs> here. So, and what, what drew you first to Dark Skies? Was it your position at the Canyon that you kind of grew into becoming an advocate or were you interested before that? Yeah, you know, I've, I've always sort of been an amateur astronomer uh, growing up and, uh and, and then when, when I jumped into the national parks, I mean, simply in virtue of living under these pristine night skies for the last 12 years in, in this and various other national parks, uh, it's sort of like whether you want to or not, you start to become intimate with the, the, the nature of the night skies. I happen to, you know, have been a fan of it prior to that. And so sort of came in knowing that I wanted to focus in on uh, night skies and night sky preservations. And I'm curious, so, you know, there are all of these regulations. There are someone who came by and counted all of the lights. Um, who decides that a national park, like, first of all, what criteria it would take to meet this designation and like, who's making this decision that like, this is what a park needs to do to become a dark sky park? Well, that's a great question because it, you know, it makes us have to look at sort of the, the nature of the park itself. You know, Grand Canyon sits at 7,000 feet you know, 8,000 feet on the North Rim on, on the Colorado Plateau, you know, high above a good portion of the atmosphere, you know, much like Flagstaff, much like Lowell Observatory in the dry desert Southwest. I mean, that's the, the whole reason 
why uh, Lowell Observatory exists here. And, mm -hmm. you know, if there were no light pollution anywhere else, you know, if all else was equal and say all the light pollution were, was gone off of the face of North America, the Colorado Plateau in this region here would still have uh, a sharpness of starlight that is unparalleled throughout most of the United States because of the the elevation and the the climate. And, you know, so that becomes really apparent when you visit here uh, at night that it's just a, a, a sharp, crisp uh, starlight. And mm -hmm. amateur astronomers, advocates, you know, through the years realize this pretty quickly. And basically what happens is you you make a recommendation to the International Dark Sky Association uh, once once word gets out that this is a really good candidate for a dark sky park, uh, the, the park gets on board, the nonprofit partner gets on board, and then somebody makes an official recommendation to the uh, International Dark Sky Association. And that also involves in that, that sort of first part of the process to quantify the darkness of a night mm -hmm. sky. And we're actually able to do that using uh, devices like a, a sky quality meter as it's called. And that's basically, um, it's, it's, it, it's an, and it, it enables you to quantify the, 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 the darkness. So the international dark sky association has sort of like a minimum, uh, number that you have to reach in order to be a candidate for a dark sky park. And our initial measurements just showed that, you know, yeah, we're, we're not only meeting the minimum requirements. I mean, we're, we're approaching near, near pristine, dark skies as if I like mm -hmm. virtually no light pollution. So we were just a great candidate, both geographically and, um, and then in terms of the management of the park as well. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that uh, the Colorado plateau was kind of like a, a really good site. Um, do you know what other national parks are considered to be international dark sky parks? Yeah, you know, the world's first international dark sky park under this certification was Natural Bridges National Monument up in Utah, uh, here on the Colorado Plateau, uh, certified back in, I believe, around 2007. So you have Natural Bridges sort of leading the charge. And if you've never been to Natural Bridges, it is a level of darkness that... Um, <laughs> just sort of blows the mind. Uh, it's the, 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 the fragile night sky phenomena that you can see with your naked eye in natural bridges is, is, uh, is just, is simply sublime. And, and they, they realized that pretty, pretty early on. And so they, they became the first international dark sky park that was followed by other parks like death Valley national park, uh, big bend national park, uh, Chaco Culture National Historical Park, and many other parks along uh, uh, on the Colorado Plateau quickly joined the ranks of international dark sky parks. And now there's, I mean, dozens and dozens of dark sky parks in just the national parks itself. I mean, that's not to include state parks and um, national forests and other land management agencies communities and things like that that have certified themselves. So all told, there's well over a hundred international dark sky places at this point in time. Wow. Yeah. I hate to, 
I hate to say our favorite one is the Grand Canyon, but our favorite one is the Grand Canyon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so when, when visitors ask you, you know, where's a good place in the canyon to see the night sky, where do you direct them to? Well, you know, the truth is really anywhere away from the direct light sources in the historic village and say the, the visitor center. Uh, but you're right, Kevin. I mean, I, I agree. This is, this is my favorite international dark sky park mm-hmm. as well, because it's like, there's, there's some added profundity to the idea of standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon at night, because there's nowhere else on nocturnal earth. You really have so much deep time revealed beneath you and stone and above you and star at the same time. And you're sort of stuck right in the middle of this deep time going both directions. And even though you can't see down into the gorge, you know, at night, you can certainly feel its presence, especially if you visit during the day. And so there's just something incredibly profound about standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon at night. And, uh, and so for me, I try to get people up and experience that, especially if they've, if they've seen the Canyon by day, you know, go up to Mather point behind the visitor center is all you would need to do. Walk five minutes up from the parking lot to the rim of the Grand Canyon and sort of feel the presence of that deep time beneath you and, and look up and see, you know, a, a, a night sky phenomena that, that virtually nobody can see anymore in the United States. I mean, a lot, a lot of people say the, the, the whole sort of speaking, uh, uh, the, 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 the phrase that people use is 80% of people in the United States today cannot see the Milky Way from their homes. And I like to think to my, I think to myself and I try to share with visitors, you know, that's true, but the uh, a crazier thing to think about is by the time the Milky Way disappears, there's actually another level of incredibly fragile night sky phenomena that have that have long disappeared by the time the Milky Way is threatened to be disappeared. We're talking about you know the Andromeda galaxy. We're talking about air glow and the the Gegenschein and the zodiacal light and you know, you know, visible patches of, of nebula and, and clusters that are so utterly fragile. And our ancestors used to pride themselves on being able to see not limited by light pollution, simply limited by the, the limits of human biology. I mean, our nocturnal eye biology. I mean, that's, so there's, there's this very thin, thin layer of, of enchantment in the night sky that is that disappears in the slightest bit of light pollution. And so I, I always try to remind people of that, that the Milky Way is this, you know, sort of like the charismatic megafauna of the night sky. And everybody wants to see the galactic <laughs> core. And it's this beautiful thing to see. But um, yeah, to be able to see these other uh, specter-like, ghost-like, fragile night sky phenomenon uh, uh, that disappear before that is is just uh, is incredible, and that's those are the type of things we try to protect up here. And you're right about the magic of the canyon, where 
time and space, you, I don't know where else you can go. There are other places, but that may be places where you can go that really capture the essence of time and space. And then, like you were mentioning, we think of our ancestors down in the canyon, looking up at the same sky, the same darkness, and what they saw and what they imagined. Um, it, it's special because you're, it's like you're a time traveler. You're going back in time. You're also looking forward in time as you as you look at the sky. And I think, you know, with the Grand Canyon, um, somebody that's captured that concept, I think um, Tyler Norgren, who yes. did his postdoc here at Lowell Observatory. And of course, you've worked with him very much. He's written books about um, protecting dark skies and, and did a, a book about um, dark skies in the national parks. And yeah. his, I think he's the one that coined the term half the park is after dark um, yes. because there's, yeah, great to see during the day, of course, but my gosh, at night, it's like a, it's like a two for one deal. <laughs> like <laughs> you, you came here to see the canyon during the day, but it's, it's as mesmerizing um, at nighttime. And there's an interplay of, of that deep time that uh, is, is incredibly profound. You were mentioning uh, you know, d looking down, uh, being down inside the Grand Canyon and looking up at the night sky. And sometimes I, I like to think to myself, when you're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and you're amongst two billion year old Vishnu schist basement rock and you touch that rock, you know, and you look up at the night sky, if you were to reverse time back to when that rock was mm -hmm. formed you know, most of the stars in the night sky above you disappear. You know, the, the rock itself is, is, is more ancient than most of the, the immediate stars in our vicinity. And so, you know, even being able to think about that type of, that type of interplay, I mean, even the youngest rock layer, Grand Canyon, for example, the 270 million year old Kaibab limestone. I mean, since that rock was laid down, uh, deposited on the North American landscape. I mean, we've done it just over one revolution around the galaxy. You know, it's like, it's, it's, I love just thinking about these, these different ways that the night sky and the, the earth uh, interact with each other. And that's a, that's a theme that comes from uh, a, a, a deep understanding of the sky and the earth from some of the indigenous peoples of the landscape, uh, like the Diné, like the Navajo people who have a very intimate connection with both father sky and, and mother earth as they call it in their tradition. Um, so it's just, it's just a joy to be able to think about the different aspects of deep time here at the Canyon. And you said something um, that I can personally attest to is um, how many people haven't seen the Milky Way or yeah. um, anything like that. I, I actually just moved here from Houston not too long ago, just a few years ago, and uh, you couldn't even see Orion or, I mean, you couldn't see any of the stars at night. It was like wow. living in a globe. And the first time I witnessed it was as, as an adult, I went to... Big Bend National Park, which I don't know, Raider, if you've been to that one. Mm -hmm. um, it is crazy remote. It's so hard to get to, which I think is yeah. an advantage to the Grand Canyon because you've got that history and you've got these beautiful, pristine, dark skies, but it's also easy to access for a lot of people. Um, 
Yes. The amount of work you have to go through to get to this that kind of park usually is like with the Big Bend, you're talking uh, you know, it's maybe five hours to the closest airport from the edge of the of uh, from the edge of the park. <laughs> so but the first time I saw it, it was uh horrific. Like I was I was crying. I mean, just seeing the stars, I, I couldn't I had to leave Houston, which is how I actually got here. So <laughs> well, there's there's three points I want to make there. One is you're absolutely right. I mean, Grand Canyon, I, I see this as such a great opportunity because there's really no other place I can think of that has such infrastructure and accessibility, yet also yeah. maintains its pristine natural darkness to the degree that Grand Canyon does. Because you have parks like Big Bend, which are incredibly dark, but super remote, remote. Or you have parks mm -hmm. that are incredibly accessible, but they are, you know, light polluted to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So the the relationship between those two uh, aspects makes Grand Canyon, I feel like it should be the worldwide hub of dark sky outreach and uh, preservation, be, uh, being able to For share sure. uh, about the threats of light pollution. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention with what you said there was you know your idea of seeing the milky way for the first time coming from houston uh mm -hmm. it's i always love hearing those stories because you know to, part of the certification process in understanding is under is of course understanding how dark our dark skies are and one criteria you can use to figure that out is a scale known as the Bortle scale and it's a it's a subjective scale. It goes from Bortle, what's called Bortle Nine to Bortle One. Bortle Nine means you're in downtown Las Vegas, you know, in being able to mm -hmm. see maybe one star. Bortle One is, you know, you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it's pristine. And each, it's a dichotomous key. So every scale, like when you go from nine to eight to seven to six it's asking you a series of questions that is letting you know how dark your sky is. And when you get down to the Bortle 2 and Bortle 1 area, there's a couple of really interesting criteria that the Bortle scale uses to determine how dark your sky is. You know, and, and, I, and I'm mm -hmm. saying this with keeping in mind that most people, like we said, can't even see the Milky Way. But when you're in a Bortle class two site, uh, the criteria is something like the the Milky the the, the center of the Milky Way galaxy uh, sh shows detailed structure, and what they mm. mean by that is that you're looking at the Sagittarius star cloud, you're looking at the Scutum star cloud, you're looking at Prancing Horse, you know, you're looking at the Cygnus dark yeah. rift. These are these are. This is the anatomy of the Milky Way that our ancestors were familiar with enough to have given names to, you know, parts yeah. of the center of the Milky Way galaxy distinct enough to be to be given names. And then the Bortle One site says that on a moonless summer night, the center of the Milky Way galaxy should be bright enough to cast your shadow. And... What? <laughs> Up here at the well, Grand Canyon, you can, you can, you can wave your, it's, it's like, it's not going to be like moonlight, but you can wave your hand in front of your other hand and see it moving from the starlight of the center of the Milky Way. And 
That said in the context of 80% of people no longer can even see the Milky Way yeah. sort of gives us an idea of just what we're missing out on and, 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 and just that we're the first generation, first few generations in the history of humanity to miss out on that. And so that's kind of, these are, these are the type of sort of emotional connections that I try to, that, that spur me on to try to help do what I can to limit light pollution, at least in this park. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was shocking. It was, it was like, I had never fathomed that you could see those many stars with your, with your naked eye, just looking up. Um, and I mean, I got dizzy. I mean, it was just like seeing that was, it was so much to take in if you've never seen that with your own eyes before, like your entire adult life. I think I was like 27 um, and hadn't seen that at all as an adult. And it's, it's really something well, special. Well, and, That's and crazy. You said, you said uh, a little bit ago when you were describing how you saw the Milky Way for the first time, you almost slipped and you said, it was horrifying. And this is, it was horrifying. I was, that's, that, that is a, that, that what you said there is fantastic because this is something I like to talk about as well is that, you know, it is kind of scary. There is a, 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 a fear factor when it comes to being able to see the profundity of the night skies. And, you know, our ancestors knew, very well what this feeling was they called it sublimity and mm. sublimity in the historical context of that word is a mixture of awe and terror at the profundity yeah. of nature and you know it's even these subtle emotions of being able to experience awe which is something experience sublimity which is something that you kind of experience when you look at the grand canyon by day uh, mm -hmm. but to be able to confront the, you know, cause we're the, we're the first, one of the first generations in the history of humanity, humanity to, to confront the aesthetic power of the night skies whilst also knowing it's, you know, it's terrifying extent, you know, the universe was a lot smaller to people 200 years ago and, now that we know, you know, just how large of a universe we live in, you know, we're, we're, we're coupling that with looking at the awesome aesthetics of the night sky. And so we, we really have a great opportunity to, uh, to experience some very profound emotions and connections um, with our natural world that people in the past simply couldn't have done um, largely thanks to places like Lowell Observatory who have, you know, given us the understanding of the scale of the universe. Yet we're also paradoxically, you know, the first generation to veil ourselves from that knowledge. So it's kind of like, yeah. man, we have this incredible opportunity that we're squandering away um, mm -hmm. with light pollution. Let's get into light pollution and how it's harmful. Like we, at, like at the observatory, we totally get how light pollution sucks because we can't research, we can't study, we can't see anything, uh, which is why it's so great that we have, um, it, you know, our dark sky city here in Flagstaff. And I'm curious um, at the Grand Canyon, 
how is it harmful in ways other than stargazing? Well, the, uh, it, yeah, exactly. So it's harmful not only for stargazing, but it's harmful for uh, the economy. I mean, it's, it's not very economically feasible to you know, waste light pollution, uh, waste light into the sky. Uh, it's estimated mm-hmm. somewhere over 30% of uh, commercial lighting in the United States is shot directly up into to the atmosphere, doing nothing to help us see better at night and doing everything to block our view of the skies. Um, and that's that's equal to about $3 billion a year in you know finite resources where we're just shooting up into the atmosphere. Uh, it's mm-hmm. It's harmful on the scale of human health. I mean, we're, we're all understanding now that, I mean, that light pollution is effectively a, you know, a, a carcinogen, you know, it, 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 it is linked to uh, cancers, obesity, depressions, mm-hmm. anxieties, things like that. Um, so we're understanding that half our lives, you know, supposed to be spent in, in, in darkness when we're sleeping and, and, so that's that's another another thing, and then particularly, uh, you know, coming from a national park standpoint, you know, the the ecology of the of the national park and the natural world in general is threatened by light pollution. Uh, a lot of people tend to use the, you know, some of the more charismatic animals uh, like sea turtles, for example. We we might have heard of the idea that. You know, on the on the East Coast, places like this, sea turtles are incredibly affected by light pollution when they hatch on the beach. You know, in in a light pollution free environment, they would typically head towards the ocean water where the moon and the stars are reflecting off the ocean, and the the, the brightness of the stars in the sky upon the ocean is what's attracting them to the waters. And now there's light yeah. polluted sky domes that are attracting them inland and they're getting run over by cars and things like that. And that's a, that's a fantastic example to use. And, but for Grand Canyon, I think one of the, the aspects I focus on more are sort of these, these larger scale sort of phenological and population shifts that we're seeing in some of the species that are more of the ecological nuts and bolts of a given system. Um, I mean to say mm-hmm. insects, you know, birds, for example. You know, the whole idea of moths gathering around an artificial light at night is is not is not a natural thing. <laughs> it's that's very right. unnatural, yeah. and they're dying of exhaustion. They're being picked off by predators. And we're seeing and just starting to understand the the implications of what scientists are now calling uh, an insect apocalypse that's occurring. Poor babies. Uh, largely at night. I mean, it's it's something that fifty percent of our insects on the planet are nocturnal, and when we're we're messing with their habits and things like that uh, with these artificial lights at night, um, we're we're really doing doing damage. And that's that's also to to include. Our, our bird populations as well, where hundreds and hundreds of millions of birds are are dying every year by running into buildings and being attracted by artificial light at night in cities and things like that. Uh, you know, when they when they lit up the they did a study in New York City when they lit up the 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 lights for the twin towers 
that, that, that homage of light, uh, in that general area, there was about 500 birds that would frequent that general area where they lit the lights up into the sky. And mere minutes after they lit up those lights, it attracted something like 15,000 birds to the same area. Wow. And, wow. Um, and so, so there's groups that are picking up birds off of, you know, they, they, they walk the mornings around buildings and they pick up dead birds and collect them just to show that this is, this is an incredibly detrimental effect uh, uh, mm-hmm. to our bird populations. And so those, those larger scale sort of phenological shifts that we're seeing in these populations is what's really concerning me uh, when it comes to light pollution and ecology. We uh, were talking about like the negative effects of not having dark skies and everything. Um, But I do want to ask about uh, dark sky programs, things that could help. And um, I heard about one called the Astronomer in Residence Program. And I was I was wondering if you could explain what that is. Sure. So the Astronomer Residence Program was conceived a few years ago and it's based off of the artist in residence program, which is established in many national parks and other entities around the the world uh, where you have an artist say, come to a park, live as a residence in the park for a certain period of time, and then produce artwork in their medium based off of the resources that they have immersed themselves in. And we kind of had the idea to come up with a similar program that was more focused in on the night skies itself. So the astronomer in residence program here at Grand Canyon, which is the first of its kind in the national parks, is wow. is is not is is it's a catch-all phrase. You don't really have to be an astronomer. You can be, and we certainly do have astronomers come, but it's a catch-all phrase for astronomers, educators, writers, artists performing and visual, uh, to come to Grand Canyon, live at the park for their residency and produce content that is focused in on the night skies itself. Uh, And so we thought by focusing in on the night skies, yet allowing for multiple disciplines to come in and study it, that we'll get a really beautiful holistic look at why night skies are really important to preserve not just from the astronomer point of view but from the astrophotographer's point of view from the musician's point of view from a poet um so uh, so like i said i mean our 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 next astronomer residence who's going to be coming here in uh, the end of april is she her name's ima barrera and she is a world-renowned astrophotographer who's going to be spending her residency simply photographing the night skies and then sharing that content with the public. Whereas our next astronomer in residence coming in August is an American poet. And she's gonna come and sit under the night skies for her residency and come up with poetry uh, about her experience under pristine darkness. And so uh, that's, the, that's the whole idea behind the program, which has been graciously funded by Grand Canyon Conservancy, our nonprofit partner, and um, we're, we've, we've had two, Dr. Tyler Nordgren, who we mentioned earlier on, is, was the first inaugural 
astronomer in residence. Um, and then we had Dean Regis, another astronomer from the uh, Cincinnati Observatory. And they mainly did outreach programs, interacting with the public. But it's a very diverse and exciting program. And the applicants so far have really... Um, have really uh, expressed and uh, reflected, I should say, the spirit of the program. And so we're really excited to continue this um, in, in future years. And our 2023 applications are gonna be opening up sometime very soon here in the summer uh, for, for that year. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it's super really exciting. Cool. It's really exciting. And like I said, it's just so diverse. Yeah, I wish I could go on and on about the, the type of applicants who have applied uh, here, but we've already got a really, really diverse array of, of, of applicants. And, and so that's just one, one program that Grand Canyon National Park is, is trying to include into this whole broader set of programs underneath our our dark skies outreach and uh, our dark sky outreach program in general. And so that's, you know, that astronomer residence program sits side by side with the Grand Canyon star party and with a few other programs that we have planned for the future to again, make this, you know, the largest, most complex international dark sky park in the world and the hub for dark sky outreach, you know, worldwide. Speaking of dark sky outreach, obviously it's International Dark Sky Week, uh, April 22nd to the 30th. Uh, do you guys have any special events or any way that we can uh, celebrate with the Grand Canyon? You know, we are doing some collaboration work with Lowell Observatory with all you. So we're really oh, excited. Oh, who are they? Hey. <laughs> we're really excited. I don't know. They're kind of a cool observatory south of us. Oh, uh, interesting. We, uh, <laughs> we love working with you guys. So we're really excited to to collaborate oh. there. We're going to have... Uh, Super stoked. Yeah. We're going to have some, uh, obviously, just our a push in our social media content on how to best preserve the night skies. We're getting ready and at the very end of Dark Sky Week to get our um, astronomer residence on board here. So she's going to be jumping on right at the tail end there. And then just here on site at the park, I mean, what we like to do is for everybody visiting during that week is really just get them outside at night to enjoy the beautiful weather that's going on in northern Arizona right now and and the pristine skies over Grand Canyon. So we're doing a lot of on-site sort of uh, outreach for the people here because at the end of the day you know it's we want people just to to have that experience you know what's great about that is you know we think of places that are dark skies areas like flagstaff and the grand canyon of course and then we think of places like you mentioned las vegas and phoenix that there's a lot of of um, light pollution but arizona governor doug ducey declared made a declaration that this was you know astronomy week so even in a place that has a lot of bright lights, there's this awareness that's important um, to celebrate this. And so I think we're all looking forward to, to um, you know, working with you and seeing not only for, for this particular week, but moving forward, how we continue to preserve the night sky. And I, I think we're, we're going to be winding down here, but kind of in that vein, you know, for folks listening at home, um, what can they do, um, you know, based on your experience, what can they do to help make their city a dark skies uh, community. Yeah, the this effort uh, is 
one of the more grassroots efforts I've ever seen when it comes to an ecological problem. And uh, I've seen regular folks like you and me, you know, turn their communities into international dark sky communities just through the passion, just through wanting to to get it done. And so, I mean, on a smaller scale within your own household or your own neighborhood, uh, it, it's really just inventorying your own lights, you know, doing a double take uh, of, of how important that light is, uh, you know, establish if you establish whether you need the light at all. And if you do find that you need it, try to try to make sure that you're lighting only what you need and nothing else. And so that that's putting a full shield on your your fixture and, and lighting only the ground that it needs to be lit. And so that's that's one important point, because, you know, this movement isn't about getting rid of all the lights on the planet and, you know, throwing us back to the Stone Age. It's it's about smarter lighting. So lighting only what you need when you need it with the just the just the amount of brightness that you need, uh, nothing more. And with warmer color bulbs, you know, on that amber redder side of the spectrum uh, to be able to preserve that uh, your night vision and and the night vision of other nocturnal creatures. So it's really just taking an inventory of your own community, uh, your own household, your own community, and then getting involved with your town council, talking with your town council about how, you know, how we might rezone uh, the the community to, you know, include some lighting ordinances uh, to be dark sky friendly. And this, this is, you know, a win, 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 win situation uh, across the board. And it's just, it's just a matter of outreach at this point. You know, it's just like 80% of people can't see the Milky Way from their house and only 1% mm-hmm. of people actually know what the problem of light pollution is. And so it's really just a, yeah. a matter of getting the word out. And I almost am afraid to brag about this because, um, house, house prices are, are decently high in Flagstaff. So please don't move here, but come visit. Um, the first house I lived in, in Flagstaff, I was walking out at night to put my trash away and I was stumbling down the driveway and ran into my mailbox. Um, <laughs> and this was down like in a very populated neighborhood, five minutes from the observatory. Um, I just, and again, like uh, my eyes were not used to such dark skies, but they do such a good job of like having like the yellow street lights that are pointed downward, which makes sense because you don't need to see up in the sky to drive, right? It's on the street, which that checks out. Um, But it's so amazing to be able to walk out on your driveway and literally see the Milky Way from your house with your porch light on, you know? I mean, obviously the porch lights are also special and that kind of thing, but um, it's it's a very unique place. Flagstaff is is the model for this, how to do this right. And so I, I would second that. I would say go please go visit Flagstaff if you're not from there mm-hmm. and and enjoy that idea where it's not, like you say, not a mutually exclusive situation. We have the ability to make our world one where we can light up all the paths that we need in our cities, yet also be able to look up and see the the milky way and so that 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 Mm -hmm. is a possible world that we can live in and so it's just it's just about us all rallying together and and getting something like this done because light pollution really is one of the easier 
types of pollution to clean up when it comes to all the big problems that we're facing in the world. This is one of those easy ones we should be able to tick off of the list. And, uh, and it's kind of a proof, proof of concept that we're able to rally together and do something on large scales. Like think, think of the moths. Yeah. Think of the moths. <laughs> Crying out loud. Think of the moths. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are insanely, we are already at time, uh, in fact, over uh, the time that we allotted on our schedule today. So I'm sorry that we uh, ran a little late, Raider. But no worries. Thank, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this podcast and talking about dark skies. I'm really hoping we can convince you to come back and talk about maybe the geology of the canyon or something fun like that. Absolutely. Anytime you guys will have me back, I would be happy to participate. Thank you so much. This has been this has been really fun. Yeah, totally. And uh, for all of our listeners out there who have stuck with us through this really awesome episode, I just want to remind you guys that if you have any questions about anything we asked today or anything uh, about space in general, go ahead and use our hashtag AskStarStuff and check out our Twitter and Discord channel. Uh, you can ask us questions there. We also share some fun content there. So uh, yeah, definitely definitely hit us up. And um, Raider, where can we ask questions of you online? Do you have a Twitter machine or an Instagram? You know, I, we can... I don't have those for better or worse, uh, but I am, I am uh, infinitely available if you uh, <laughs> go to the uh, Night Skies webpage at Grand Canyon and uh, my contact information should be on there and, uh, awesome. and I, yeah, please reach out for any questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, um, you know, thanks Kevin also for joining us for this one. We'll let you get back to your celebrity schedule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Well, this has been great. It's great talking with you, Raider. And, um, I look forward to our next visit up at the Canyon. Yeah, it's been too long. I really look forward to it, Kevin. Yeah, see what trouble we can get into. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 